Summer, we are studying the book of Ephesians, not only in uh, the sermons, but in our Sunday school classes. So I invite you to take a Bible and turn to chapter 2 of Ephesians. If you're using a Bible from the pew, that's page 976, Ephesians chapter 2. Before I read the passage, I remember reading uh, some time ago in Reader's Digest an interview with Muhammad Ali when he was in well enough health to do such. And he was asked, this man who had uh, converted to Islam many years before, he was asked by the interviewer, how do you feel about different religions? And he answered, rivers, ponds, lakes, and streams, they have different names but all contain water. Religions have different names but all contain truth. The interviewer asked, what does your faith mean to you? And Ali said, it means a ticket to heaven. One day we're all going to die. And God's going to judge us, our good and our bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. I am thinking about the judgment day and how you treat people wherever you go, that you help somebody through charity, because when you do, it's been recorded. Most world religions are founded on this type of thinking, based on the idea that if you live a certain way, and do it well enough, then you can achieve or you can earn heaven or whatever they choose to call their idea of it. Whether it's kamikaze pilots in World War II, whether it's suicide bombers in the Middle East today, or whether it's people sitting in a Presbyterian church thinking that, well, I've been baptized or I received communion or my grandparents were members here or I've been to seminary. It's that type of thinking that we call legalism. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God or acceptance by God through obedience to God. So the question is, how can a person be made right with God? And that's what we find here in Ephesians chapter 2. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. This summer in the Sunday school classes, we're studying some of the distinctives of Reformed theology. If you've been around, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've heard the term Reformed. I am asked often, what is Reformed theology? It comes from the Reformation, 
hence the term. The word reform means to return, to return to the Bible. But there are three distinctives of reform theology. If you get this three, you have a basic handle of what reform theology is. The first hook to hang your hat on is the sovereignty of God. It teaches that God is sovereign. That means that God has complete control to do whatever he wants with no influence from outside. In other words, no human uh, influence. That's God's sovereignty. The second pivotal doctrine, distinct doctrine, is the total inability of you and me to save ourselves. That we are totally depraved, that is, that sin has affected us in all our capacity, in our totality, and we cannot save ourselves. The third distinctive is the sovereignty of God and salvation. That salvation is all of God, that he initiates it, that he carries it out. So the sovereignty of God, our total inability to save ourselves, and the sovereignty of God and salvation. If you're on a game show and you are asked what is Reformed theology, those are the three things. That, those are the three distinctives. And we see all of those here in verses 1 to 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. It's a lot to cover in one sermon. So let's just go briefly, you might say, through each part of, of the passage. Verses 1 to 3 describe what life is like without Christ. Describes what your life was like if you're a believer today, it was before. Now as we read this, every one of us in this room, this applies to us now or did apply to us. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. Now how did this happen? Someone has to be alive before they can be dead. Well, you know, we call it the bad news, good news. We go back to our ancient foreparents. The Bible teaches there were two people, literal people, Adam and Eve. And they had a perfect life with God. They literally walked and talked with him in the garden. And God gave a prohibition that they were not to eat from a particular tree that was in the garden. In Genesis 2, it said, You may eat from any tree of the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you shall eat from it, you will surely die. It was a statement that was emphatic. You will die. Well, if you know the story, they did eat, but they did not die, not the way we think of death. They did not die physically. They lived on a long time after that happened. They had children and grandchildren, and, I mean, they lived long lives. But what happened on that day is they died spiritually. Whatever certain capacity, that sense they had to relate to God in a perfect manner was broken. You and I now inherit that sin nature from our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve. And with the exception of the one who was born of a virgin, Jesus, all of us are born with sin natures. So we function very well, perhaps, in the physical realm. We appear very much alive, but we are dead in the spiritual realm. And that is reflected by sins and trespasses. The word trespass or transgression means to wander from the path. When it uses that here, you were dead in the trespasses. If, you, if you're out for a walk one day and you're going past a house and there's a, a fence and a sign that says no trespassing, basically they are saying don't get off the path. Don't wander into our yard off the sidewalk. Well, that's to wander away, but sin is more direct. When it says sins, that is to miss the mark. This is more willful. This is when we knowingly go the opposite direction than we are to go. Now, today's Father's Day. Some of us here, uh, some of you are fathers-to-be. Some are fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers. 
And uh, those of us that have raised children know that we had to teach them many things. That was our responsibility, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you try to teach them life skills. You try to teach them how to ride a bicycle, how to drive a car, how to do lots of things. But one thing none of us ever had to be taught or to teach our children was how to sin. <laughs> I mean, I did not have a lesson when they were three and say, Now, listen, let's sit down. I know you're going to have a hard time with this, but I want to teach you how to lie. Okay? Now, when I'm, when I, I'm, let's, let's practice. I'm going to ask you, did you do that? And now here's what you say. You look at me, and, and you try to look sincere and say, no, I didn't, though you really did. Okay, let's practice. Let's work on this. Okay, now let's, let's work on some sins in the family. Here, you grab this toy that belongs to your brother, and you say, mine. And then you, brother, respond back, but no, it's mine. And then you hit her. We don't have, none of us ever had a lesson on that. We're born spiritually dead apart from God. Now, this morning you are either alive spiritually or you are dead spiritually. But if you're dead spiritually, you won't know it. And I'm going to address that in a few minutes. Look at the second description. First, we're spiritually dead. In verse 2 he says, you're held captive. Held captive by three influences. First, he describes that we follow the course of this world. He's t the world is the approach to life that leaves God out. It's just a system of thought. And that holds people captive. And he says that is what you are captive to, just the world's way of thinking that functions as though there is no God. Second, he says you're held captive by the devil. Yes, in case you're wondering, the Bible teaches there is a being called the devil. It's not a figurative representation of evil in the world. Here he is called the prince of the power of the air, other places the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. And the devil is actively at work in unbelieving people. And he has one primary aim. He has many tactics and many approaches, but one primary aim. His chief aim is to blind people to the truth. He wants to blind people to the truth. He may use religion to do that. He may use morality to do that. He may use immorality to do that. He may speed some people up. He may slow some people down. But his aim is to keep people in darkness, spiritual darkness, and his influence is powerful. We were held captive by the devil. Third, the third influence in verse 3 is we were in bondage to the passions of our flesh, also reading the cravings of our sinful nature. That's just talking about the desires of the body. There's nothing wrong with the desires that God created in our bodies for sleep, for food, for water, for sex. But God gives certain parameters for each of those. And Satan wants to pervert those natural desires. He's the master deceiver. C.S. Lewis said that Satan has never been able to manufacture the first pleasure himself. All Satan can do is to get the people of the world to misuse and distort and pervert the pleasures God has given. So outside of Christ, our lives spiritually dead, captive, and third, we see in verse 3, the end of that, we were condemned. We were children or objects of wrath, God's wrath. Now, if you want to pick within established churches the doctrine that is most offensive today among church people is, is that God is a God of wrath. Uh, in fact, 
I, I was at a meeting where we were shown a, a new hymnal that has just come out in one of the mainline denominations, and they were careful to point out that every reference to the wrath of God had been edited out of all the historical and newer hymns. God's wrath is not like man's wrath. Uh, we think, when I think of man I experienced, we experience the coach's wrath or that teacher's wrath or my boss's wrath. Typically what we mean by that is somebody that has a bad temper and they flew off and, and, and they had a short fuse. That is not at all the way the Bible describes God's wrath. Here's the best description or an easy description of God's wrath. God's wrath is his personal, righteous, constant hostility toward evil. It's his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. And it does not fluctuate in the Bible according to mood. It's not like God rises up and says, you have pushed me so far. You know, I'm counting to ten, and when I hit ten, no, it's constant. It is not like our wrath. There's a present dimension to God's wrath. There's a future dimension to God's wrath. But regardless, we're in a bad situation without Christ. We're dead in sin. We're captive to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are facing, we are condemned by the wrath of God. Now what can help us? We cannot help ourselves. We cannot save ourselves at this point. We certainly cannot save other people. So what happens? Look at verse 4. Now the good news begins. The first three verses are the bad news. And it starts with this word. But, but God, God has intervened to save us. And he saves us intervening in each of these areas with death, captivity, and condemnation, the very areas where we're in trouble. Notice how this works in verse 5. We were dead in sins, but it says even when we were dead, he made us alive in Christ. So he's given us life. That's the first part. Second, we were captive to the world of flesh and the devil. But what has God done? It says in verse 6, he's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. There are no prisoners in heaven. There are no captives in heaven. So we are free. We are free in him. Third, he deals with the condemnation issue. Verse 7, we are no longer under God's wrath since Jesus has suffered in our place the wrath that we deserved. And we've been delivered, so we are no longer under his wrath. And instead, we are objects called the incomparable riches of God's grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So he could have left us spiritually dead. He could have left us captive to the world of flesh and the devil. He could have left us under his condemnation, but he didn't. And he did not save us because he saw something in us that warranted it, that we deserved it. But the only way spiritually dead people are made alive is by the Lord. He's the only one that can accomplish this. Paul repeats this in the New Testament. In Colossians 2, he writes to them and says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. Well, why did God do this? Moving on in the passage. Well, verse 4 says because of his love. It also says because of his mercy. Let's just call it his merciful love. Instead of condemning us as he had every right to do, he reaches out, he saves us through the death of Christ. This is his unconditional love. We know we didn't deserve it. And so in verse 5 and following, it mentions his grace. 
Grace means there's no cause in us why God should have acted as he did. Now, we tend to think the opposite. It's just natural. It's in our DNA to think we deserve something, we earn something. God sees something in me, and he owes me something. But that is not true. That is not God's grace. Grace is his favor to the utterly, the completely undeserving. And that's his kindness in verse 7. He does not turn on us. Instead, he is kind. Why has God done this? Because he not only shows love, mercy, grace, and kindness, he is love, mercy, grace, and kindness. And now we come to verses 8 to 10, which may be the best known, most known, most familiar verses in Ephesians, certainly in this chapter. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I looked up the word grace in a, uh, a book of biblical quotations, and these were some of the descriptions people gave. Uh, undeserved favor. Grace is God carrying you because you are unable to walk. Grace is God giving you a priceless gift that you cannot pay back. Grace is God giving you something good you do not deserve. Well, what does this grace do? It saves us, we who are spiritually dead. And the action is complete. It's not a partial saving. It is not 90%, and then you add to it 10%. It's 100%. He saved us, complete, a complete salvation. Grace has done it all. The grace is not coupled with our effort. It's not that God will give grace as we do our part. Perhaps the best-known statement in popular American religion is God helps those who help themselves. Now, where did that come from? Does anybody know? It's not in Proverbs. George Barna found that of Bible-believing Christians in America, 86% believe that statement is either a direct quotation from the Bible or an excellent summary of the Bible. Benjamin Franklin said it. God helps those who help themselves. Now, I know you can qualify statements every way you want to, but that statement is intended that it's our effort that God blesses. And we don't depend on God. We just make it happen, and then God will bless us. That is in direct contradiction to the Bible, and especially here in salvation. Because we are not just sick, and we need to, as like a sick person, go get some medicine. We are dead. We are corpses in need of a resurrection. Now, I've been, I have conducted many funerals, and I have never seen a corpse do anything. The only hope you and I have is grace and grace alone, by faith. Now, what does that mean? Faith. What is faith? There are many misunderstandings of faith the world has. One is just that it's subjective feelings, that as long as I, if I believe I'm right with God, if I believe I'm okay with God, then I am okay with God. You know, it's just, so I have faith. I have faith and I'm right with God. Or it's wishful thinking. 
the attitude of a person who will accept something completely apart from evidence, biblical evidence or anything else, simply because they wish it's true. I've had more than one person might say, you know, well, God condemns this, what you're doing. Well, my God doesn't. Which God is that? Well, this is my God. I mean, I, they've created their own image. And, and so that's wishful thinking. Or they think faith is just optimism. Just believe in yourself and your dreams will come true. None of those are biblical faith. Biblical faith has three key elements. The first is knowledge. We must know certain things. Who you are, who Jesus is, and why he died. Now, we can spend lifetimes continuing to study those. And you have entire textbooks written on the death of Jesus. So I'm not saying you need a master's level of all the intricacies of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus in order to have the, enough knowledge to be saved. But there has to be some knowledge. Even, I would say, what can a child understand? Then that's probably sufficient knowledge right there, like that. So there needs to be knowledge. And here, Paul's given us a lot. He's told us of our condition without Christ. We were dead in sins. We we're the objects of God's wrath that God has reached out to save us through the work of Christ, and that this is of grace. That's basic facts. Knowledge is part of faith, but it's not all of it. Second part, the second element of biblical faith is where you come to a conclusion about that knowledge and you choose to accept it with your will. Faith starts in your mind, you might say, with information, but then it moves to your will as to whether it's true. So now, not only do I know those facts about Jesus, I believe it. I really believe there was a man that when he was put on that Roman cross, my sins somehow, in a way I don't understand, were put on him, and he died for them, even though that was 2,000 years ago. But it has application for me today. Now, that's the second element of faith, the will. But the third, the last aspect, is commitment. And we call this trust. It means casting yourself in upon Christ, resting on his promises, accepting his finished work on your behalf. The Bible uses the analogy of marriage to describe our relationship with Christ. And it's a great analogy because we can understand it. Even in our day, especially in our day, we have wedding ceremonies with vows, covenant vows, and so forth. But think about marriage. Here's a relationship. It probably starts with what we would call courtship, just a time when you're getting to know the other person, seeing the other person in a variety of circumstances and noticing their characteristics and then deciding, do I, do I want to spend the rest of my life with this person? Can I see this happening? And now that's a very important step. That's the step of knowledge. The second stage, comparable to the second element of faith, is the movement of the heart to where you begin to commit your will, saying, I'm committed to this relationship. And then finally, there's the point of verbalized covenant vows, commitment, the wedding ceremony. And at this point, they actually become married. Now, I have stood up in this area and done a lot of weddings. I start to say funerals. Huh? Weddings through the years. And I stand up here normally with the groom and his best man, and there's the, uh, there's the bride, and, and normally her father will be with her, and they walk down the aisle. Now, what if 
what if right then, when the doors open in the back, we stopped? The whole thing stopped. Would the couple be married at that point? There's been maybe three years of courtship. There's been an engagement, which is like the second stage of committing our will, but they've not yet taken their covenant vows, and I've not signed the marriage license, which the state has empowered me to do. Are they married? No. No. Now, I speak as a Southerner. I love the South. I grew up in the South. I love our heritage of faith. I love being part of the Presbyterian Church that carries on what the Southern Presbyterian Church, by and large, uh, believe in our heritage. But what I realize, and it's true of me, and I think it may be true in a crowd this size of some of you, I think there are a number of us that grew up with a Christian heritage especially, taught about Bible, taught about Jesus, maybe through a Christian school, and we think we're married to Christ, but we're only engaged. And we've got knowledge, and we've got a certain degree of, yeah, I really believe that's true, but you're not committed to it. You are not committed to it. And if you're not, you're not really yet received the gift of eternal life. And so that's what it's talking about here. This way, it's a gift. It's a gift, and he says there's two key applications. First, this is not of your doing. It's not that you worked for it. It's not that you earned it. Not that it was a reward because God has saw something so sincere in you. And second, because it's not of our works, there's no room for boasting. There should be no arrogance. There should be no pride. R.C. Sproul's mentor was John Gerstner. And John Gerstner tells about preaching in a church on a passage like this when a woman came up after the service who was very angry about this whole truth of being spiritually dead, captive, condemned, and the thought of her own sinfulness had really hit her hard. And so she comes up to John Gerstner and gets in his face and says, you make me feel this big. And he said, lady, that's too big. We are really a minus quality. Justification is by faith alone. And then look at the results, verse 10. Though we're not saved by works, Paul knew, he anticipated what people would say. Well, if it's all of grace and all of this, then do we do anything with our faith? Is it lived out? So typically, he goes right into and he addresses works. For we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yes, once he raises us from the dead spiritually, we're given new life, we're married to Christ, then works, fruit, will follow. It will just naturally follow. The Bible in other places speaks of this. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, When Jesus is condemning public shows of religion and thinking there's value in that, prayer on street corners, giving large amounts of money in sight of other people so they will know, he warns about all that. But then he also says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So, yes, we are to do good deeds. Jesus mentions, the Bible mentions several, a cup of cold water in Christ's name, care for the widows and the orphans. And it might sound self-serving, 
And there's no room, I think there's no room for patting ourselves on the back when we serve Christ because the glory goes to him. Let me try to express that. I've said this before, it's been a few years ago, but I couldn't think of a better analogy. Sixteen years ago, our family welcomed our son Stephen. Among multiple disabilities he was born with, the most obvious was a bilateral cleft lip and palate. I knew nothing about cleft lips and palates back then. For those that may have been like I was then, bilateral means the lip is in three pieces. It's split like that. So that's obvious right when he was born. Unilateral is one like that. So in the days, literally the days that followed after his birth, people kind of became, came out of the woodwork that we didn't even know, but they'd hear about this through friends, and they would call and say, listen, I want to tell you something. We had a child, and that child, the surgeon that closed the lip, we recommend. Or other people would call and say, we went to such and such a place, don't go there. We were never satisfied with the way it looked, the scarring and so forth. And we heard about this surgeon, in a particular surgeon in Miami, and we began studying pictures, and they would often the doctors' offices would have pictures of, of the surgery, the, the success, the before and after pictures. And often you'd look at that and say, "Wow, man, I can't even tell you'd see the before picture and see after." So I, I wouldn't even know that there'd ever been a, a cliff right there. Then you'd look at others and go, "Oh man, that looks that's very obvious." Well, so we had a surgeon up in Atlanta, and he, he was an artist. He really was an artist. Uh, and he's now moves, he's in uh, California. He moved out there years ago. But he did a great job. He did a great job on, on closing uh, his, his cleft lip and the palate in, in the top of it, the roof of his mouth. Anyway, my wife, being far more extrovert than I, if we're in a crowd and notice someone say that kid has a closed cleft she goes over (laughs) more than once to the parents and they'll begin talking well I see your son there I see your daughter what do you think the first question is who is the surgeon there's not the, the 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 glory the praise doesn't go to the patient but in a case like this where something's visible you ask who was the surgeon the surgeon did did a great job Now, what Christ is saying is let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That when it's it's done spirit-powered, it will be, man, I thank the Lord for what that person is doing. It's not glory that goes to the individual. Okay, a few words. If you are sitting here today, and it could be with this many people, and you're thinking, I am in verses 1 to 3. I am dead. I am captive. I am under condemnation. And if you recognize that, there's hope because that is not from you. That is from God. And God may have started a work in you that he wants to complete. And so pray to God. Pray and say, Lord, give me this gift of eternal life. See, dead people don't know they're dead, right? We can assume that. A corpse doesn't know, oh boy, I'm dead. If you recognize that, though, that means God is giving you life. He's beginning a work. If you look at your life and say, yeah, I've got the knowledge about Christ. I was taught that by my parents or my grandparents or the Sunday school teachers. In fact, I really, I really think it's probably true. You may need to face the reality that maybe so far you've not truly committed yourself to him. 
that you've not then taken that knowledge and even that will and said, Lord, I cast myself on you. That when I look at that man on the cross that was your son who died, I am looking to him to make me right with you. And that when he died, he died in my place. And there's nothing I can do to make myself right with you. Give me new life in Christ. Make me the person you want me to be. Some of you may be at that point today. That's what you need to do. And I do it today. Jesus says, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that while we were yet dead in our sins, while we were captive to the world of flesh and the devil, while we were under your condemnation, but, but you in your love and your mercy and your kindness, you've sent Christ to be our Redeemer. May our trust be in him, in him only, not in ourselves, not in others around us, um, but, but only in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.